Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Randall Wright, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing good. Good to be with you. Good. Glad to have you on. Randall Wright is the author of The Book of Mormon Miracle, 25 Reasons to Believe. Uh, a great book, Randall, but before we get into the book, would you mind just uh, sharing with us maybe a brief bio about uh, who you are and, and give my listeners a feel for uh, you as a person? Okay, well, uh, I guess briefly, as far as church goes, my great-great-grandmother and great-grandmother and uh, great-grandfather joined the church in 1897 in Alabama and, and kind of never left, so that's my mother's side. They're all southern members and uh, stayed where they were. Uh, on my father's side, uh, the winter of 1899-1900, missionaries came through, baptized my great-grandparents and my great-grandmother, who was 18-year-old and single. Um, that side has about 5,500 descendants now from that baptism, and my great-grandfather died six months after he joined the church, but almost all of northern Texas and almost all are LDS. So that's the LDS side. And then uh, 68, I got my letter in the mail, big white envelope. I was 19 years old, and it said, greetings, you're now inducted into the United States Army. So that was an interesting time of life with the Vietnam War raging. And uh, so served two years uh, active duty and then four years reserve. Uh, got a bachelor's degree from BYU, master's from Lamar University, PhD from BYU, and PhD is in family studies and just kind of the influences that may be uh, kind of destroying the family, so to speak. But my specific uh, dissertation was the impact of electronic media, television, movies, music, uh, you know, internet, and study on the impact, especially of teenagers and uh, their sexual attitudes and behaviors. I taught at BYU for two years, institute director in Austin, uh, UT Austin, and so written a few books, mostly about family or personal change, personal coaching or business executives now, and and other individuals, and uh, live in Austin, Texas, having fun. Great. In the great state of Texas. You're in the great state of Texas, huh? Yep. I'm in Austin, Texas. Uh, I was institute director uh, beside the UT Austin campus for many years and just stayed here. Have five kids and you now 16 grandkids. Wonderful, wonderful. Good to hear all of that. I want to get kind of jump into the book, but want to ask you first, uh, what was the what was the precipice for for writing this book? What was the the impetus for for diving into this kind of material and, and deciding that this kind of book was needed? Okay, well, I guess we'll see if it's needed, but. I guess I was I was reading the book Mormon one day and I thought, okay, who's speaking? I'm I'm confused on who just said this. Was this King Benjamin? Was this the angel? They're telling exactly what to say. Who's speaking? So I just turned back and I thought, I'm going to start over again. I'm going to go to First Nephi and I'm going to write in the margins who's speaking. So I just wrote 
I knew if I was being blind, I recommend Nephi. And I, I just drew a straight line down as I was reading until I come to a quote by Lehi, a changed authors, changed voice, and uh, back to Nephi. And I just basically went through the whole Book of Mormon and did that. And uh, got together with three friends at BYU and the religion department. And uh, they were kind of interested. So they went through and then the religion department gave a little... Uh, student help there where we had someone go through and assist and go through and put all four of our uh, book models together that we had written in the margins and uh, kind of put it all together. And I was just fascinated uh, how many voices there was and how many different things. I asked a uh, experienced church leader, I said, how many different people do you think speak in the book model? He said, probably at least 10. And I said, try 153, depending on how you uh, do the Lord God who's speaking there. But I just thought it's interesting that 88 of the individuals or groups that spoke are not even listed in the index. And so you just go, wow, I can't believe there's so many. And then you can go, I actually then reformatted the Book of Mormon by authors if it was a, a modern book and you were quoting someone. And I noticed that. Those main authors, if they can quote someone, a Nephi, uh, a Mormon, they'll always quote if they can. It's like they're writing a dissertation, and if they can quote someone, if there's an original letter, uh, a talk, uh, a speech by Alma, they'll put the whole thing in there. And so just fascinating to see that. But over 1,500 voice changes as they go back and forth, and I just thought, wow, uneducated farm boy, this is pretty pretty intense here with how many people you have as your characters that are speaking. And so that kind of started it. Then a, uh, one of the PhD students at UT Austin came in and he said, have you ever noticed the unique phrases, the original phrases in the Book of Mormon, just really cool ways of saying things? And I said, like what? And he said, like tender mercies of the Lord. And I thought, okay, Elder Bednar's talk. And I go, well, tender mercies is in the Old Testament, I think 11 times. Uh, but tender mercies of the Lord is only one time. Uh, it's in the Book of Mormon, and it's mentioned one time. It's not in the Old Testament, tender mercies of the Lord. And I thought, that's interesting that we can see that he couldn't have plagiarized that phrase from anywhere else. He would have had to come up with it because uh, a search of that term, you know, that we got search engines, uh, you just go, that's really interesting. I said, how many do you think are in there total? And he said, there must be a hundred just unique phrases to the Book of Mormon. So that kind of, he left, and that just started me on a computer search of phrases, three to seven words, and all of a sudden you start seeing uh, there's not a hundred, there's not five hundred, there are thousands of unique phrases in the Book of Mormon that are not in the New Testament, they're not in the Old Testament, not in any writings of his day, and go, where'd they come from? Who made them up? Either Joseph Smith made them up, or he and Oliver Cowdery or Sidney Rigdon or anyone else wants, someone wants to put in there helping him, and I don't know how many they are still a work in process, uh, even this morning I was looking at it again, which I do every day, but just those little three to seven word phrases, I think there's upwards of 30,000 or so in the Book of Mormon. So that just kind of got me thinking. I thought, wow, what else? And once I had it divided by author, where it was reformatted, I could see then uh, who's saying this. And just to do those uh, phrases has just been fascinating to me. So anyway, that kind of started it. 
Awesome. Glad to hear that. I uh, I want to jump into some of this. And just for the listeners, uh, again, the book we're talking about is titled The Book of Mormon Miracle, 25 Reasons to Believe. Uh, it's an exceptional book, Randall, and, and I really enjoyed kind of going through this and preparing for the interview today. Uh, we will link the book uh, to this uh, podcast interview so that people can see where they can get it and, and pick up the book for themselves. But it's just been fascinating. And as you go through, I, I know the the book says 25 reasons to believe. I think that's a little bit misleading because as I went through the book, I certainly came up with way more than 25 reasons yeah. uh, going through it. I think I think you may even have maybe a hundred different things in here that uh, if we pick each of these apart into various pieces. Yeah, well, I just I had to round it off to chapters. And so I just stated the chapter headings as, you know, a reason for me. And again, you know, I realize that somebody that's made up their mind, it doesn't really matter what we say in there. But it was for me, I just go, wow, how did he do this? And and that became the kind of the book. I, I'm going through and saying, how did he do this? And, you know, for like a aunt that I had, uh, she was convinced that man never landed on the moon, which I was shocked at at the time. But no matter what anyone presented as evidence, she still didn't believe it. And you do a little Google search on that, and you see that's not that far out. There's a lot of people that don't believe it ever happened. And I go, well, we're not going to convince those people that we actually went to the moon and they got their mind made up and say the same thing with this book. But to me, these were interesting points that, again, I just asked myself over and over, wow, how did he do that? How did he come up with this uneducated farm boy and, you know, got a lot of uh, classes I've taken in college and, um, I just shook my head and said, there's no way I would even attempt to do what he just did. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's, and, and my point being that with as much as this book covers and as much as is in this book, we're just going to hit on maybe, maybe a third or so of some of the things that are mentioned. Uh, but I want to start off asking you about some of the Jewish customs and traditions, uh, that we find in the Book of Mormon and maybe just have you speak for a moment on some of those things that we find in the text. Yeah, well, I think everyone realizes that if you're writing a book that's going to endure, you got to be careful what you do. And I was at a, I'll just throw this in quickly, I was at the Gilchrist Western Art Museum at Cranston, and he said, have you seen a picture of Custer's Demands? And I was painted in 1903 by uh, artist named uh, Vogel, I think, and he said, have you read the criticisms to it? And I go, no, and I looked at the picture, it was Custer with two of his officers and his soldiers in the background meeting with these Indian chiefs with their braves in the background. And uh, again, the criticism was uh, from a historian that nice picture, however, there are 12 mistakes. The saddle is not from that time period. The sword that's not from the time period. That's not the officer's uh, uniform at the time. The hat's wrong, and I just thought, wow. As I walked away from that, thinking that painting was done 39 years later. And so even uh, Harry Potter got in trouble with uh, consistency when he threw his uh, Game Boy, so to speak, out the window, uh, some kind of video player, and, and somebody pointed out that uh, it wasn't manufactured till the next year. And so there's a problem. So in the Book of Mormon, you better be careful what you do. So you look at things like Altar of Stones. And if you look at the specific phrase, not only did they build altar stones as Jewish customs offer burnt offering sacrifices, but how they said. So in the Old Testament, for example, in Deuteronomy, it says specifically the phrase an altar of stones. That's only used one time that very phrase in the 
Old Testament. But interesting in First and Second Kings seven, when they came to the Americas, uh, those kinds of themes, uh, they did similar things. But his came from First and Second Kings seven, and it came to pass that he built an altar of stones. The exact same wording as in the Old Testament. Is that what Joseph Smith could have copied that? You know, yeah, that he had to go looking through Deuteronomy and come to one verse to get that phrase. And you just felt very consistent. Uh, if it was painting, he did it right, so to speak. And some of the things he put in, like bow of steel. You go, at the time it was black, that he, who in America is going to have a bow of steel? And you go, who anywhere? And then the critics will point out that carbonized steel was not made in pill. And, and yet, if you look close at the Old Testament, there's, there's one little verse in there. Second Samuel 22, he teaches my hands to war. So that a bow of steel, the exact same phrase, is broken by my arms. And so again, just consistency in language, consistency in customs, the burnt offerings, even up through Mosiah, steel, Mosiah 2, 3, first thing you have the flock were sacrificed and uh, just build the law of Moses. And then 13, 5, when Christ comes, he says it's done away with, and you see it never mentioned again in the Book of Mormon. So it's mentioned then not mentioned, but to go, wow, these are Jewish customs here. But again, even how they talk, uh, the shore of the Red Sea, you see that mentioned one time in the Old Testament, you see that one time in the Book of Mormon, and you go, well, you could categorize that. But over and over again, you go, wow, you're, you're getting a pretty big list here of what he gets right on, over and over, and especially when you see it only mentioned one time in, for example, the Old Testament, after a while you just say, uh, that seems a little more than coincidence that he could do that. Place of brass mentioned there, but, but even the names in the Book of Mormon, I mean, you, you have to be careful with your names. And he starts off with the Lehi, Sarai, Laban, Lemuel, those kinds of things. But I think if he would have said, started off with Jackson, uh, had some sons named Kobe and Aiden and Mason and Jaden and Camden and LeBron would say, we are so off base here. But every one of those names are, again, just right on, and you just go, how did he do that? You know, and Zoram, we don't know the source of that, but, but some of those names, uh, Sariah found in uh, Elephantine Papyra now from 5 BC, it's just uncanny how he could get those traditions and those uh, just customs of the Jews and their method of language, what they did, just kind of right on. And even starting off, I mean, if you were to go and ask a kid right now, who is the king of non-LDS? Who is the king of Jerusalem, uh, Israel, and 600 B.C.? I'm pretty sure you would not get the answer. But even for Joseph Smith, if you're reading the Bible, they didn't have all the footnotes. I do some Bible collecting and refurbishing and selling, and I've seen those Bibles from the day. I've had hundreds of those Bibles from the day. They didn't have the same research tools we do. How would he even know that Jeremiah was a contemporary of Lehi? How would he know that Zedekiah was the king at the exact same time? And he said, well, some of that's mentioned in the Bible, and he he knows his biblical history then in an amazing way, and yet his own mom says he didn't read much at all. So, Again, just uh, one of those things where you say, okay, put that on my list that uh, a strike uh, in the right direction for Joseph. Yeah, excellent. You know, there's uh, 
lots of different, uh, of course, as you point out, chapters in this book, and they each address various issues or various things that we see as as reasons to believe. Another one that you've got in there is the power of the word. And before this interview started, you and I were just talking about the impact that the Book of Mormon's made in our own lives. But perhaps just speak for a moment about the power of the Book of Mormon uh, beyond just you and me, but people generally. Okay. Uh, well, it did have a major impact on me. And just because I was fifth generation LDS, uh, doesn't mean I had a testimony. And so uh, the Army uh, was a life changer for me and uh, kind of a crossroads of which way I was going to go, surrounded by, and in this case, drug use and immorality and uh, those kind of things. And, you know, I had to think. And so I finally pulled out the Book of Mormon toward the end of my two years' service, really, and, and started to read with real intent. And the first time I read with real intent, it changed me. But over the years, I've just kind of kept uh, journal entries of experiences, not just the Book of Mormon, but all kinds of things. But... Some of them stand out. Uh, I speak a lot around the, the U.S. and Canada, and et cetera, but uh, multiple times, youth conferences, especially for youth, uh, those kinds of things, I just made notes of what was said. But another little 14-year-old boy in uh, Euphrates, Washington, he said, you know, I just finished reading the Book of Mormon. He said, I made a vow that I was going to read it from start to finish, have an open mind, and then pray at the end and ask if it was true. And he said, I wasn't going to pray to the end. He said, I finished it recently, and he said, I want to tell everyone that I knelt down beside my bed, good-looking 14-year-old boy. I knelt down beside my bed, and I asked if it was true. And he said, it was like fireworks going off in my head. I knew it was true. And I thought, isn't that interesting that a boy reads it and knows it's true? Contrasted with, I uh, was in the mission presidency here in the San Antonio Mission for several years and did some second interviews, and I interviewed a, a PhD student from mainland China who had grown up as an atheist, not believing in God. She was here at the University of Texas, Austin, working on a PhD, and so I'm interviewing her. Obviously, she's interested in joining the church. She would go through the second interview, and so I just asked her, how did you get interested in the church? She said, well, I'm getting my PhD in English. When I was working on my master's, someone said, you need to read the Bible. It's the most translated, most books imprinted. Any book is the Bible, and she said, you should read it. And uh, she said, I read it, and the Bible touched my heart, and I became a Christian. And I said, well, how did you get interested in the Church of Jesus Christ, right? I think. She said, well, two missionaries knocked on my door, and they presented me with the Book of Mormon and told about the influence of it, and she said, so I wanted to read it. She said, so I read the book, and... uh then she said, and I'll never forget it, she said, the Bible touched my heart. The Book of Mormon touched my soul. I want to be baptized. And I just thought, isn't that interesting that someone who grew up an atheist from in a foreign culture with a government that uh, kind of endorses atheism would read a book from an American farm boy, if we're going to believe the critics that he wrote it, and it would totally change her life if she wants to join the LDS church. And I thought, wow, the power of. But, you know, one of the things that I wrote about in the book is, is that a lot of people say that he wrote it. And I go, okay, if he wrote it, where is the credit for being one of the great novel writers in history? On the one hand, you say he wrote it. On the other hand, you give him no credit for it. But it has a 150 million plus, that was 2011 totals, we're, we're going to be approaching 200 million before too long, but it's like no big deal. It doesn't count because people are giving them away and go, why are they so 
into this book that they would want to give it away. But I just did a little thing in there comparing him to Jay uh, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, and somebody wrote on the Internet that it's really no big deal that he wrote the Book of Mormon. After all, Lord of the Rings is just as complicated. And I thought, isn't it interesting that we have to resort to using one of the great writers, one of the most brilliant men in history, and compare Joseph Smith and say it's no big deal, give Joseph Smith no credit, but for Tolkien gets all kinds of credit. But then you read a little bit more about the Lord of the Rings. Took him 12 years to write it. He was 62 years old. Uh, most say that he spoke and uh, had knowledge of up to 30 languages. He was an English professor at Oxford. He was uh, associating with all of these brilliant writers, and yet even Tolkien said that he was embarrassed at how many mistakes he made in the book. But here's my point, and it is, the power of the book, Mom, how do you convince 85,000 or so young people to leave behind friends, school, jobs, etc., and pay their own way, or for the family to help pay their way, to go out and share the message of a novel, according to the critics, and I can't imagine getting 85,000 people to go out and share the message with the Lord of the Rings. And go, why isn't he given any credit then? On the one hand, either he's a prophet or he's a fraud. If he's a fraud, uh, he's a brilliant fraud. And you just, another one of those points, how did he pull that off? That uh, a lady from Beijing, China, a young boy from the States, and I got a letter oh, several years ago from someone in Japan. She said she was a student in Yakima University in Japan, and she said she wanted to thank my family. I had no idea why she was writing me, and she just said, the missionaries gave me a Book of Mormon, and I read it. I want to thank your family for your testimony, and then I thought, I don't know anybody in Japan, and then I thought, okay, the ward had a little... Uh, Push for the Book of Mormon, write your testimonies as a family in the Book of Mormon, we're going to send it to some missions of the church. Our families got sent to Japan. The girl said, thank you for that, uh, introduced herself, told she was a college student, missionary stayed in the Book of Mormon, thank you so much. I was baptized three weeks ago. I want to tell you thanks for sending the Book of Mormon. I just go, wow, the power of the Book of Mormon. Worldwide, all classes, all age groups, all cultures, that book appeals to them if they'll just give it a chance. And you go, okay, so an uneducated foreign boy wrote this book. How did he pull that off? So, anyway, it's a powerful book, and I'm sure you've had some experiences also with it. Yeah, I have. And uh, unlike a lot of investigators, when they're taking the, more, the missionary discussions and considering joining the church, I think most of them will just read uh, a small bit of the Book of Mormon just kind of sampling it almost, but I made a commitment to myself to read the entire thing and, and got a pretty profound answer when I was done and asked Heavenly Father if it was true. And, and so in, the, in even since that point of having quite a bit of a struggle with my faith, kind of a back and forth, uh, ebb and flow to my testimony, uh, one of the things I've always firmly held on to is that the Book of Mormon is a divine tool to bring me closer to Christ. And, and that's been my testimony all along. So I, I appreciate that. The the Book of Mormon certainly does have a power to it. How old were you when you read it? Uh, I was 17. And family wasn't LDS? No, my, my family uh, were not members of the church. My mom was a inactive Baptist, uh, hadn't been to church since she was a teenager. My dad uh, believes in God, believes there's a supreme being, but beyond that has never 
taken it any further than just a thought in his mind. Well, and those are the kinds of things. I had a I had a young man come to my office at the institute oh, seven years ago or so, and he said he just joined the church and asked him how he got interested in the church. And he said when he was eight years old, his family stayed in a Marriott hotel, and he said, I kind of took the Book of Mormon. And uh, anyway, he brought it home with him, put it in this little box. His parents had no idea, and he felt like he'd stole the book, so he didn't want to tell his parents. And he said, when I got 15, I was cleaning out my little chest, and I saw the book, and he said, I read it. And he said, I believe it's true. And so I asked my parents if I could join the LDS Church, and they said, absolutely not. He said, but I went with the intern at the in Congress, and he said, I went to church, and I was baptized by a bishop there who was a Marriott executive, and uh, I said, what are your parents doing? I said, they're not happy. I said, what does your dad do for a living? He said, oh, he's a Baptist preacher of one of the largest churches uh, in uh, Dallas, Texas. Very interesting, that. And I asked him, how many LDS friends did you have in high school? He said, zero. I said, you didn't know any LDS person? I didn't know one person when I asked my parents if I could join the church. But again, back to the power of the book. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the next one I wanted to talk about, which to me is one of the most profound, and I don't, I don't know if there's any other way to, to explain the Book of Mormon is the internal consistency, which you point out, I think, uh, maybe beginning on page 185 of the book. And, and maybe just to share two cents of my own, my own thoughts here before kind of letting you, um, kind of expound on this, but when I look at the Book of Mormon, and I look at the different dating systems used, the the names, the geographic locations, the the traveling of people in the story from one geographic place to another, the directions that are involved in that, uh, the not getting names mixed up, not mixing up storylines, keeping everything very straight, and even taking into account the changes that have been made to the Book of Mormon. There have been, I think, a couple that have impacted one uh, proper name being used as another. For instance, I think somewhere uh, it was the original translation said King Benjamin, and at that point King Benjamin was dead, and the, right. and the correction was King Mosiah. But even taking those kinds of errors into account, the the number of mix-ups or things that, that if Joseph is the author, the things he gets wrong seems minuscule, compared to the wide breadth of the story. Maybe talk for a moment about that internal consistency. Well, again, I just think it's interesting that Joseph Smith verbally dictated the Book of Mormon to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery hasn't heard any of these names. Uh, you can imagine going day after day, hour after hour, with unfamiliar material, and uh, Joseph is just spouting it off as he's writing it down. Then that manuscript uh, is recopied. We have the printer's manuscript that goes to, so a chance for errors again. And then it goes to the Gramlin Press, where 27-year-old John Gilbert is going to take that. And uh, it's basically one flowing paragraph. And, and the fact, and I talk about this, that, that one of the reasons, I believe, is the, the unusual small amount of corrections that were made to the book. But the internal consistency, as you pointed out, is just remarkable. When you put the geography and the city names, and you'll see... Uh, names mentioned in certain points of the book, certain times of the book, and then never mentioned again. And you go, oh, yeah, they left that area or whatever the case may be. But as you mentioned, there's three ways to uh, track time. And so the three ways are from the time they left Jerusalem. And you'll see that used up until a certain point. And the point is when they went to the reign of the judges. And then you pick up a different way of 
keeping track of time, and that is for the reign of the judges. There's no mistake. They never say from the time Lehi left Jerusalem again, once they go to the reign of the judges. Once they go to the reign of the judges, they're very consistent with that. It stays true until some other event happens, and that is the birth of Christ, and then from the rest of the book. But there is no variation from that, and I certainly didn't find this. Somebody said, look at this, but I think it's so interesting, the small thing of up to Jerusalem. And you go, up to Jerusalem, what do you mean? They always go up to Jerusalem. If they're going anywhere else out of Jerusalem, we go down to the land of their inheritance. We go down to Egypt, down to Egypt, up to. Well, all you'd have to do is type in a little, get into the LDS site and the scriptures and put the quotation marks around both sides and put up to Jerusalem. And you'll see that it's totally, absolutely consistent in the Old Testament in the New Testament, if they're going to Jerusalem, they go up to Jerusalem. Book of Mormon, up to Jerusalem. Never down to Jerusalem. It's always up to Jerusalem and always down to anywhere else. And as somebody pointed out, they're talking elevation here. Jerusalem's the highest thing around. You have to go down out of Jerusalem. You have to go up to Jerusalem. And it's go just a little point and you go, oh, it's huge. How did he every single time get it right? Uh, but as we go through the consistency. So in First Nephi, you say, how many times is Christ mentioned in First Nephi? And you go, zero. You go, what do you mean zero? A book about Christ, and we don't have the name Christ in First Nephi? No. When does it first come in? Second Nephi, chapter 10, verse 3. When the angel tells, not Nephi, he tells Jacob that this is going to be his name. And then in Second Nephi, Christ is mentioned 49 times. In the book of Jacob, 25 times, every other book mentions his name. Even Nephi, from that point on, you'll see Nephi in his closing chapters mention the name Christ multiple times, but he never does until the angel tells Jacob what his name's going to be. And so just very interesting, uh, the internal consistency. We see foolish traditions mentioned six times. Not very many, but in each case, it's by an apostate. No active church member, so to speak, of their day uses those terms, just apostates use that. Or it's a Nephite record, so we get very little insight into first-hand accounts from Lamanites. We do get a little bit of interaction and in how they were taught, the language they used when Ammon and his brothers go to the Lamanites on their mission. And when they're teaching Lamoni and his father, both of those men use a term to refer to God, and they say the Great Spirit. It's the only time mentioned is when it's directly from the Lamanites do you see the Great Spirit. Never does Nephi use it. They use God. I asked our institute secretary, a sister, Tatsune, for years. I said, why do you think that Ammon and Aaron corrected Lamoni and his father on the Great Spirit? She said, because it's false doctrine. They have the body of flesh and bones. So, she it's a doctrinal thing, and it's very interesting. But I just thought it was interesting. Me and my wife, she's from Montana. We were at the, uh, the battlefield of the Custer battle, and there was a plaque there that Crazy Horse uh, had some messages for the Americans. But I just thought it was interesting when he said, we did not ask you white men to come here. The Great Spirit gave this country to us as a home. And I thought, okay, get into the DNA of whether they're really... Book uh, Mormon kind of people, but isn't interesting that he uses the Great Spirit and only the Lamanites use it 
in the Book of Mormon. And we went from there to a little family reunion. Her uh, uncle was a professor at Eastern Montana College or whatever it is, and it had a little uh, group there of Native Americans, uh, drums and kind of chanting, and somebody said, how did your group get together? And the guy said, we believe the Great Spirit got us together. And it's just interesting to me that the Book of Mormon totally consistent with that, only going on cues that uh, it's all through. It's just, as you mentioned, just one after another uh, where we just don't mess up, so to speak. You see a name, but again, you don't know how the cow did it. John Gilbert got messed up, but uh, so minor compared. Yeah, in fact, I even have a solution for the whole Benjamin to Messiah uh, air. And again, as you point out, it might be Joseph's air, it might be uh, Mormon's air and abridging the plates. Yeah. But I also think something else possibly could be happening as well. Uh, King Benjamin, right around the time that he is passing on the kingship to Mosiah, and Mosiah, I believe, and sends out Ammon on his mission, uh, it's, and then it's while Ammon is out on his mission that he is telling people that King Benjamin has the power to translate. I often wonder to myself if perhaps Ammon was sent out on his mission before King Benjamin had died. And while King Benjamin certainly would have passed the kingship on to Mosiah by this point, King Benjamin, while still living, would have still been the high priest, and hence he would have been the person who had the ability to translate. And I think if you go back to that, it's within a few verses of each other that we're told that Ammon set on a mission and that King Benjamin passes away. And I think if Mormons are bridging the record, it would be very feasible for him to mix up which one happens first and which ones happen second. And, and for, you know, in some ways, they really have no relevance to each other other than later on when Ammon is announcing who has the ability to translate and he names King Benjamin. If he's out and about, there's no cell phone service, of course, where he's at. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't have known King Benjamin had passed away. And so in his mind, that still would have been the person who had the ability to translate. Very interesting. And isn't it interesting that you may start to think about things like this. And again, back to the uneducated farm boy, has people in 2015 considering these kinds of things. And PhD, brilliant people, BYU, for example, studying these things every day, teaching it every day, and coming up with those kinds of things over and over. And you go, what other book could stand? And we had one of the brethren come here, and I'm getting this second hand, but uh, this is down in San Antonio. I remember the Quorum of the Twelve. He said this, and I'm quoting him. Temple Pregnancy member here that I worked with, he said that the apostle said, I've read the Book of Mormon over 300 times. He said, I don't say that to brag. I say that what other book could hold your attention for that many times and you still discover new things every time you read it? And uh, just like you just said, Bill just said, uh, sitting there thinking about things. Wow, what if? You know, and it just got fascinating, the whole thing. It just it keeps you engaged as many times as you want to go through it, you'll see new things. Yeah, and, and beyond that, you know, we've talked about dating systems and, and all that, but the Book of Mormon in some ways is multi-layered as well. So the critics like to point out that if Joseph is making the thing up, he's borrowing from books of his day, he's borrowing from his own family's uh personality and the in the you know, the right. the individual traits of each person in the home. When you take all these various things that the critics say, oh, listen, he borrowed from this and he borrowed from that, and then to weave them into one free-flowing story that stays together, you're not just talking about dating systems and, and characters and places and directions. 
you're talking about multiple layers of different things going on, whether it be military action or a religious tradition or, you know, the individual stories of these people, uh, whether it be the, the battles that Nephi's having with his brothers, uh, ideologically and, and with kind of their lack of faith. The Book of Mormon really is, and I think you point this out in the book several times, the Book of Mormon really is, whether you want to say Joseph's a fraud or whether you want to say the, that he is, is the divine translator of this, uh, of this scripture, uh, either way, it's a miracle. Oh, for sure. In fact, you know, it's hard for me to wrap my head around 2015. Really, an angel appeared to you? Really, there's plates hidden on the side of a hill? You translated them? Really? I mean, it's a far-out story, and I, for the critics and for the gent-sitters and for the non-believers, I just go, I can appreciate that this is a pretty hard to swallow, this whole story, and yet, for me, that is far easier to believe than he wrote it. I've written a few things myself, uh, have a PhD, not writing about that, not sure how I got it, but the bottom line is... I try to put myself in the position of pulling off, and it's not just the Book of Mormon, it's the witnesses, it's a hundred other things that all fit together, and what some do is take one little thing, okay, this is similar too, and you go, you know, I was over in Rome at the, uh, the uh, St. Peter's Basilica there, and uh it, it's unbelievable. If you haven't been in there, you just go, oh, my word. But it's almost as if somebody said, well, they copied that from a log cabin they saw. They both have windows. They both have a roof. They both have floors. And you go, sometimes really stretching it to try to say this was the source of its inspiration. And, you know, I think we've all been how the you know, Star Wars is like the gospel. And sometimes I get... You know, just go, really? I mean, we've got to stretch it that far to try to come up. And so give me a logical explanation of how he did it. Not that it's similar to just a little bit like, and uh, therefore he turned the whole thing in. He's talking about when his childhood, and he's reliving his childhood and putting them in the place. And that doesn't explain it for me. I, I can't wrap my head around that. And I just go, no, there's more to it than that. No, I totally agree. I, uh, I wanted to skip ahead here and we're kind of been bouncing around. We'll continue to do this, but the, uh, the three witnesses and, and the story I wanted to share was on page uh, 236. And, and this is a story about David Whitmer. And I just want to say this about the witnesses. Critics like to complain and, and kind of try to tear the testimony of those three witnesses down by saying that at least I think in one of their, maybe two of their accounts, there's this mention of seeing things with their spiritual eyes. But I think what the critics fail to talk about is the number of statements we have from these three men. And then when you add the eight witnesses in, the number of accounts we have from those eight men who are testifying of what they seen uh, and, and handled and, and touched the plates and their experience. It's easy if we have a hundred statements from these men to pick out one or two and say, you know, and those one or two, it's possible that they're talking about never really having seen the plates at all. But but when you weigh it against the whole, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then the story I wanted to share from your book was was one you wrote here about um, David Whitmer and his standing up for, uh, for his testimony. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it says that uh, David and his wife had moved to Missouri where his family was persecuted uh, severely by mobs. At one point, David and other church leaders were taken by a mob and ordered to say goodbye to their families because they would never see them again. 
The prisoners were brought to the public square in Independence, stripped of their clothing, then tarred and feathered. John P. Green told what happened next. The commanding officer then called twelve of his men, ordering them to cock their guns and present them at their prisoner's breast, and to be ready to fire when he gave the word. He addressed the prisoners, threatening them with instant death unless they denied the Book of Mormon and confessed it to be a fraud, at the same time adding that if they did so, they might enjoy the privileges of citizens. David Whitmer hereupon lifted up his hands and bore witness that the Book of Mormon was the word of God. Uh, the mob then let him go. And so obviously there was this threat, and uh, obviously the threat is real at the moment, uh, and David Whitmer in the face of that, standing up for his testimony, maybe just for a moment speak about uh, these three witnesses specifically, but maybe the 11 as a whole, and and how their testimonies really are a lot bigger and, and more certain than than the critics like to paint it. Yeah, well, with the three witnesses, the eight witnesses, again, with the whole thing, I try to put myself in a situation, and let's just say I, I come up with this wild story, which they say Joe Smith's making it up. He goes out and gets friends. It's interesting that uh, you can't trust these guys because they were his friends, and yet almost in the same breath they'll say you can't trust these guys because they turned against Joseph Smith, and you go, which is it? And uh, I think it's so perfect for the entire story that they turned against the church for a while. Uh, that's just interesting. But if I say, Bill, uh, let me and you get together, and uh, I'm going to say that I saw a UFO and a little green man, and I want you to sign your name to it, and we're going to put it in the USA Today, and we'll call CNN. Uh, I don't think I could talk you into that. How in the world did Joseph Smith talk anybody into signing their names to seeing an angel for the three, seeing gold plates, knowing their friends, their family, uh, their reputation is ruined. And beyond, and beyond that too, beyond that too, right? If, if we made that agreement and we're going to put our story in the USA Today, and then six months later you kick me out of the group. Uh, and, yeah. and now I still, t I still continue to tell people that I saw the little green alien in the ship. Yeah, expose me. My word, expose me. Not only that, we're talking about years and years. And I think the key for me is let's see what they said at the end of their life, after the persecution, after the laughter, everything. So we know 1848, and here's a, uh, something that's very interesting. Oliver Cowdery, there's no doubt he was upset with Judge Smith. There's no doubt about it. And if anybody knew how to expose Joseph Smith, it would be Oliver Cowdery. He'd sit there with him the whole time. But to seek rebaptism, to bear his testimony, I wrote with my own pen the entire Book of Mormon. This is 1848, right before he died. The entire Book of Mormon saved us a few pages. But listen how he describes Joseph as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph as he translated by the gift and power of God. And he goes on and says, I handled with my hands. This is right before his death. To his wife, to his family, expose him. If ever, do it right now. You know it's a fraud? Go, no, he doesn't do it. Martin Harris, where's he at when he dies? In Utah. What's he doing in Utah? Uh, he believes again. He believes in the church, but he never doubted the Book of Mormon. Uh, deathbed. The Book of Mormon is no fake. I know what I know. I've seen what I've seen, and I heard what I've heard. I've seen the gold plates from the Book of Mormon that is written. An angel appeared to me, and you go, really, on your deathbed, you're still telling the lie? If it's a lie, expose him. You lost your form over this. You should be very upset. And you go, no, he loves the Book of Mormon. And uh, he just says, uh, I wouldn't perjure myself by doing this. And he just said, I could be a rich man right now. And here's his word. I now bear 
I could have been a rich man, but I could not have testified other than I have done and I'm now doing for these things are true. And one of the kind of a life altering experiences for me, and I wasn't really uh, a doubter, so to speak, but my testimony, uh, you know, wasn't as strong as it could have been, but I was, I was in Missouri and uh, in Independence at the reorganized world headquarters, and they had a letter on display, and you can, anyone can get it, just David Whitmer's letter. It was written 11 months before he dies. It was written to a Mr. Robert Nelson, 15th February, 1887. And I stood there just looking at this for probably 10 minutes. I go, okay, this is David Whitmer's own writing. This is the actual letter he wrote to some guy that's asking about his testimony of the Book of Mormon. But here's his words, 11 months before he dies. I did see the angel as recorded in my testimony in the Book of Mormon. And then he underlined, the book is true. And I just go, wow. So how do you pull that off? How could you pull off that to the end of their life and the eight witnesses, nobody backs out of the conspiracy? I just, it's, it's too far-fetched for me to believe. I, I just put myself that I'm Joseph Smith trying to pull off a fraud. Who would I go to? And you go, well, obviously some of them are family. It's easy to convince your family. Are you kidding me? That would be the hardest one for me to convince. Go tell my dad, uh, kind of stubborn guy, that, hey, I saw a UFO. Uh, I need you to verify it. I think even if I talked him into it, once the persecution started, once he saw what it was doing to the family, he said, son, get off of your kick here. We gotta. It's gone far enough. you got to stop. And uh, for Joseph Smith, his family, hook, line, and sinker, they all believed. Yeah, and you take in just the risk that Joseph, if Joseph's a fraud, the risk he takes bringing more and more people into this circle of, of what's going on, um, he puts himself at more and more risk for somebody to spill the beans, and yet, even in the midst of, you know, you'd be afraid to death. So if it is a fraud, right, and you bring Oliver Cowdery and Sidney Rigdon and Martin Harris and David Whitmer and, and a half dozen other people into it, all of a sudden, it becomes uh, a real risk if you go out and say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and excommunicate Oliver Cowdery. I'm going to go ahead and excommunicate yeah. Martin Harris. David that, Yeah, that's a huge risk you take in offending those men. You would have to go out of your way to say, nope, no matter what they do, they can they can do whatever they want within the church and still stay in. But Joseph doesn't operate that way. If someone is out of line, he lets the, the, the high council go ahead and have a disciplinary action and excommunicate or disfellowship somebody. It seems there's no fear on Joseph's part that somebody's going to spill the beans. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and as you say, the circle keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the conspiracy, you know, it has to be gigantic. And after a while, you just go, no, somebody's going to, somebody's going to let it out. That this is all a fraud. Never do. Right. No. Yeah. Good. Good. Uh, wanted to ask you. You know, we've got some things here we're talking about, but what are maybe a couple of evidences in this book? A couple of reasons to believe that uh, that you see is going underappreciated, or or maybe you want to draw attention to. Well, I think uh, so. A few changes. And talk briefly about this. And you mentioned some of the things that that needed correction. But again. I just go back to the whole process of how it happened, and I've already talked about that, but I was at the University of Texas, uh, it's called the Ransom Center, and it's a, kind of a museum library at the same time, but they had a, they, they first of all have a original Bible there that's uh, priceless, but as I looked at that, I went right over, and there was a book by a man named Sinclair Lewis, and if you know anything about him, his most famous book probably that got him 
uh, international acclaim was Main Street. And uh, I looked at that, and you could type it in, Sinclair Lewis, first page Main Street. As I looked at the first page of his typed out first chapter, it was it was almost comical how many lines had been written out, how many words had been written out. He had uh, whole sentences above words that were crossed out. He had a whole paragraph down below with whole sentences marked out. And I just thought, this is a man that was the first Nobel Prize winner in literature. And I counted the number of mistakes he made on the first page, and I thought if we keep that up, and it was the same length as Book Mormon, there'd be over 99,000 mistakes in his book. But if I looked at the the uh, first page and all the corrections he made, then I looked at the actual book that was printed, and I thought, whoa, it looks like the editors got a hold of uh, Sinclair's work and changed almost everything on here. So I don't know how many... Uh, mistakes he would have made. I'm sure it's much more than 100,000 mistakes in that book. And then we have a book, uh, the 3,911 or whatever changes in the Book of Mormon. And, and as you look at some of those changes, and you say, really, you would even point that out? Going through Joseph Burbley to Oliver to second copy to here's uh, John Gilbert by hand putting every single letter in there. He's got a manuscript that's one solid paragraph. And so I think when people, uh, in some cases, have left the church over the changes in the Book of Mormon, uh, really? Uh, Daniel Wallace, professor at uh, the Dallas Theological Seminary, said that the King James Version has gone three revisions, incorporating more than 100,000 changes. But then he says, the new evidence says, wow, we haven't even changed nearly all that needs to be changed in the King James Version. So the point is, I don't think anyone can write a book without having mistakes in it. And I put myself in that position and having done dissertations and I worked a little bit with Deseret Book and see the Fort and other publishers. I just go, uh, don't worry, you're going to have some mistakes. And, uh, and the book you're reading right there, I've, I've seen several mistakes was made, and I just thought, hey, I didn't know I had that right when it was sent in. Uh, but you see the italicized verses here, and then you look down, the verses aren't italicized. And, uh, okay, somebody missed that one, but I don't think it was me. So, again, the fact that it had so few changes is, to me, uh, remarkable. But the original phrases, uh, to me, I had a, a critic come to Book Mormon class, and uh he ended up mocking everything about the church. I knew he was going to stay afterwards and blast me. And sure enough, had a lot of students gathered around, but uh, he mocked the brethren on the wall, calling the geriatric good old boys club. I mean, he had something negative to say about everything, the witnesses, everything you have ever heard. Uh, he had it at the tip of his tongue. I found out he was 30 years old. Uh, he wasn't uh, working at the time, so I gave him a little... Uh, job. I said, I've got a job for you. What is it? And I told him I would give him. Uh, I think it's $200. And uh, all you have to do is write a little paper. What about? And again, he was the expert on everything. I said, just, I'll give you the story. You guys come up with stories. We have a group of uh, people in Ethiopia. They get tired of living in their country. They build a ship and they sail to Australia. They become the Australian Aborigines. What I need you to do is write a short paper, about two pages long, about 900 words long. It's about two pages of profile about this group. It's just in religious terms, 
write it in kind of King James language. We come up with five original names that no one's ever used before, and ten original phrases, three to seven words that no one's ever used before. If I could have had a camera of his face, uh, well, uh, I, I don't see what that would prove. What would that prove? That's what you said, Douglas Smith wrote the Book of Mormon. I believe there's thousands and thousands of unique phrases. There's 188 unique names, I believe, and I'm asking you to come up with five names and 10 original phrases, but you can't use Google search to see if they're original. Uh, $200 by next week. After all the criticisms, not only did he not show up the next week, he looked like he saw a ghost, even somebody asking him to do something like that. And again, I'm not, I'm not on here to try to convince anybody of anything, but isn't it interesting? We can take each individual point, whether it's the witnesses, they said they felt with the spiritual eyes or whatever. We take one little point out of the hundreds and hundreds and try to blow it up bigger than it is when all you have to do to prove that the Book of Mormon may be a fraud is for somebody to duplicate the seed. That's all you got to do. Quit criticizing and go try it. And uh, there's part in the book that uh, Alma Chapter 5, for example, has over 100 original phrases that no one's ever used before. It's used one time. It's used in that talk. It's not in any place in the Book of Mormon or the Bible or any other book that I can find. And so when we have nothing to do, maybe we can come up with a, a church talk about the same length as Alma Chapter 5 and just try to come up with a hundred unique phrases, three to seven words long, and see how we do. And uh, I don't think any of us would try it. And yet, you know, evidences of the Book of Mormon, just the uh, speeches, the talks, whatever we would call them, Alma Chapter 5, try to come up with that. Some of those talks by Jacob, King uh, Benjamin Address, and you go, you know, if we think about Gettysburg and Lincoln and his address and stuff, and most brilliant speakers are usually known for one talk that kind of sets them apart. They're not know if they have a dream. It doesn't mean for the Book of Mormon, he wrote all of those brilliant talks in the whole thing. And uh, you go, wow, what a talk that is. And it's like a Nephi 9, Jacob, Miami 5, or any of the rest of them. So, you know, evidence is, they're just everywhere. Everywhere in that, if we get past to just reading the words. and and one thing I would suggest to people is just try the writing the names of who's speaking in the margins. And uh, it changes the way you look at the Book of Mormon. And if you just underline the references to the Godhead, to deity, as you're going through, you'll see that it's totally centered on Jesus Christ. And I know that uh, I would have to go here, but that whole thing about Christ... Uh, I used to go to a lecture series at BYU called The Last Lecture Series, where all these brilliant men would and women would talk about what they would say if they had one thing to say, uh, one message. And if you look at the Book of Mormon, just look at the last lectures, so to speak, the last things included by the Lehi's, Nephi's, Jacob's, Amalekai, um, from Amalekai, and that, my beloved brother. I would that you should come into Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and to take your salvation and the power of redemption, and every one of them, they close out with, all the major writers close out with their testimony of Christ, and, and no wonder it's a second witness, a second testimony of Christ, and Ron and I come into Christ and be protected from him, and uh, it's just all through the Book of Mormon, and uh, again, amazing book. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just want to, as you point out, just work towards closing here, but share just a few other thoughts 
uh, on page seven uh, of your book, you write that I can at least comprehend that he translated it. As hard as I have tried to grasp the idea that he composed the book in 63 working days, I cannot do it. I think, you know, not only are we talking about all these complexities in producing this work, but then the short time frame in which he did it. You also quoted Hugh Nibley here, uh, the evidence that will prove or disprove the Book of Mormon does not exist. And so there is no nail in the coffin either way. And, and members need to uh, be open if, if a member is struggling or an investigator who's perhaps come across critical material or, for that matter, the critics who like to pounce realize that there is no nail in the coffin, that there is evidence on both sides at the minimum, and that, that the idea of a Book of Mormon being a divine work, that it is scripture, uh, is certainly a feasible option on the table. I uh, I want to talk about a couple other things in the book that just caught my eyes yeah. quickly. You had a, a section on proper names and... Of course, I had it two seconds ago. Give me one moment. Here we are. Chapter 13. This begins on page 149. And you talk about the book Huckleberry Finn and and how great of a story that is and how that book has been named generation after generation as one of the most influential books that are available and how, how much of a complex book Mark Twain wrote there. Uh, and you talk about his character list. I think there's about 30 characters in that book. There's about 10 different places. And then you compared that to the Book of Mormon, and I think in that character list, if I'm not mistaken, there is about 220, and then list of Book of Mormon places are about 140. And just, again, the magnitude of that and the ability that, that whoever is writing these stories, again, if the critic wants to say it's Joseph, and of course the church is saying that it's prophets uh, from many, many years past, that the story is kept together. I thought that was, was yeah. wonderful. Well, not only uh, does he use that amount of characters in his book, and as I said, 88 of them are not even mentioned in the index. You've got to read between the lines to to see who's speaking here, whether it's you know a servant of so-and-so. But I think the other amazing thing is the change. If you're the writer, you're going to change who you are. So you're going to be right off the bat. You're going to be a righteous father and prophet. No, you're a righteous son. How does he speak? No, you're a wicked son. How does he speak? He's totally consistent with that also. If, for example, a Lamanite robber leader writes to Laconius and writes a letter to him, boy, does he act like a... uh, I mean, if you want to see how the adversary works, there it is in living color. If you'll give me your land, your possessions, yourself... I'll let you play with them. And you go, wait a minute, the Lamanite leader is living out in the forest, living on stolen property from the Nephites. He's got nothing, no home or anything. And he says, if you'll give me everything you have, then I'll let you play with it. And you just go, wait a minute, I already have it. And you just go, wow, how did Joseph Smith did that know that that works just about like drugs and pornography and alcohol and all the rest? You give me everything you've got and I'll give you nothing in return. But... All of those characters, so to speak, you're going to be a righteous king. No, you're going to be a wicked king, Noah. No, you're going to be a robber. No, you're going to be a prophet. No, you're going to be a missionary. He's going back and forth so many times, as I said, 1,500-plus voice changes, but you have to be believable as that character. How would a wicked king act? What would he do? What would he say? How would he react to... Uh, a threat to his kingdom, or whatever the case may be, it just all fits. Nobody says, well, that doesn't fit the character of a core whore. You know, no, it fits perfectly. 
and you see it in today too. I remember BYU uh, young basketball player named Krishna Chosik uh, that he nearly helped convert, and uh, later a member of a gold medal basketball team in the Olympics. But he just said when he read the court horse story. He said, it reminded me of my homeland and how I thought all of this was original. And he said, I see now that it existed in Book Mormon just like it existed in my country. The same line of reasoning. And I just thought, another point. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to just finish off with uh, towards the end of your book, page 336 and a little bit of 337. And this is talking about to the martyrdom of Joseph. And, and I found this to kind of be a nice place for us to kind of wrap up and finish with. Uh, but Joseph made the, the comment. He says, I am very much resigned to my lot, knowing I am justified and have done the best that could be done. Give my love to the children and all my friends. I roll the burden and responsibility of leading this church off from my shoulders onto yours. He's talking to the twelve. He continues. He says, now round up your shoulders and stand under it like men, for the Lord is going to let me rest a while. And then you note, it is interesting that Joseph would use the phrase, the Lord is going to let me rest a while, while giving responsibility to the twelve apostles. Keep that phrase in mind as you read the following experience recorded by Jasper Henry Lawn, a member of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, of course now the Community of Christ. And uh, Henry uh, Jasper Henry Lawn says this, he says, My father was one of the guards placed by Governor Ford at Carthage Jail the day before Joseph and Hiram Smith were martyred and heard each of them speak from the stairway to the guard below. And when Hiram spoke, he told them to take their pencil and note down Revelation, the sixth chapter, from the ninth to the eleventh verses, inclusive. For, said he, that is now about to be fulfilled. My father made note of it at once, and was so much affected by what he had both seen and heard while there, that as soon as he was released from duty that evening, he came home and read those three verses to my mother, and turned down the leaf. The above incident was told by my mother some years afterward, as nearly as I can remember is related, and she showed the Bible to me with the verses marked and the leaf down. I have his Bible now just as he left it in 1847 when he died. And then you pick up there, here are the verses that Jasper Lawn said Hiram asked the prison guards to write down. Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwelleth on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet a while for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I thought that was a nice spot to kind of finish up, just sharing, in a sense, the testimony that Joseph and Hiram have left behind, and specifically Joseph in the Book of Mormon. And uh, and just wondered, maybe in concluding remarks, um, Brother Wright, if you might just share with us uh, your your kind of thoughts for those who who perhaps are struggling between faith and doubt and and having a hard time. Uh, perhaps just uh, some concluding remarks on on what you'd say to those folks. Well. I think there's so much now on the internet to cast doubt, and uh, it's coming at us from every direction. And I do think that all of us at times have our doubts, but I just have gone through it uh, like you, Bill, gone through it where, you know, you have highs and lows, but I can't get away from the fact that the Book of Mormon 
to me has to be true. And when I come to that conclusion, uh, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith must be a prophet. And you go, well, he had faults. If the Book of Mormon is true, he has to be a prophet. We can't take the Book of Mormon with us and leave Joseph Smith out. They're too closely connected. But if I were to give any kind of advice for me, it would be, can we just go into it with an open mind? And a challenge to, let's read it with real intent. Let's throw out for a moment all the pros and cons and just read the text of the Book of Mormon with real intent. And again, I just, I, I challenge anyone to write out just who's the author. And what does that do? It keeps you on your toes to see who's speaking here. It, it goes back and forth where you can tell that there's multiple people speaking here. Are Joseph Smith writing? But, Every verse, I think we should ask the question, did an uneducated porn boy write this book? It didn't fall out of the sky. The book of Mormon is here. It's in front of us. Either Joseph Smith wrote it, or with a group of friends wrote it, or he translated it. There is no in-between. It's either true or it's false. And if we'll just go in with an open mind, asking that question, one of my friends went over to Mongolia. He worked for the church education system, and he was in a seminary class. They didn't have but a small portion of Third Nephi translated into the language. And Ross Cole asked this question, how many of you know the Book of Mormon is true? Every kid in the class raised their hand. They'd only been members of the church for two years or less in this case. And the church almost brand new there. He said, every kid raised their hand. And he said, how can you know that the Book of Mormon is true if you don't even have it translated in your language? You just have small sections of Third Nephi translated. A little boy read his, raised his hand and he said, it's like eating cake. You don't have to eat the whole cake to know that it's good. And I say the same of the Book of Mormon. After every verse, just ask yourself, did an uneducated porn boy write this verse? If not, then there's not many other choices where to go. So I guess my, my advice to those that struggle between faith and doubt is just give it a chance. Just open-mindedly give it a chance chance. No matter what you've heard from the past, uh, I don't go to the Ku Klux Klan to read about race relations, although I have read their points on that. But I throw those out. Just look at it from different point of view, different eyes, different lenses, and ask if the book is true, just like Moroni challenges us to do. And uh, I think we'll get the answer. And I think for everybody in the entire world, they need to come to grips with either it's true or false. Everyone should. If a book is delivered by an angel, no other book has ever been even claimed that, as Elder uh, Holland has pointed out. But we should ask that question, is it true? If it is, then it changes everything. If it's not, then I guess continue for, for the critics. They continue on. But I just say give it a chance. Just please give it a chance. Don't throw it out by what you've read, what someone said for your own self. Find out if it's true or false. I love that. And, uh, and as we talked about before we started the interview, I've often in, in my lowest moments where, where I was contemplating essentially leaving the church, I've never, in fact, I've, I've always been adamant that if I ever did, I would take the Book of Mormon with me. It's, it, it's changed my life. And in the Book of Mormon, regardless of whether I'm wrestling with whether it's true from a historical standpoint, every inch of my bones says the book is true in that, in that the things that are taught, the principles that are in it, bring me closer to Christ. And that is the purpose of the book. And uh, as you point out, if everybody can just kind of throw the argument off to the side and deal with whether the Book of Mormon is true and that it brings you closer to Christ, 
uh, I think the answer becomes self-evident as you turn page after page. Yeah, great. Well said. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I just wanted to say thank you, Randall Wright, author of 25 Reasons to Believe, the Book of Mormon Miracle. Um, Randall, where can people find the book at? Well, you can get it for any Amazon, uh, Barnes Noble, uh, Deseret, whatever, or, uh, there's a site called Randall Wright Bookstore, R-A-N-D-A-L-1-L, Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, Bookstore. Dot com where you can get it for a discounted price and free shipping, so no tax. So uh, the publisher pays, well, the bookstore pays for all that. So anyway. Wonderful. I'll, I'll share all those links. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. He's the one who healed the leper and who brought the dead to life. He's the one who fed the hungry and who gave the blind their sight. He's the one who walked on water, then he brought them safe to shore. And whenever you may need him, he's the one you're looking for. So let him in, and he will take away your Yeah.